turn with me to uh, the book of Romans, chapter 1. The book of Romans, chapter 1. Let me begin reading for us again from uh, verse 1, and we'll just read the beginning of the letter, verses 1 through 7. Here's what we find. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we began our study of the book of Romans and I attempted to uh, establish for us how precious and important uh, this book is. Its message is essential for our souls. Now this evening uh, we come together to actually begin our study with the first verse. And when we come to the first verse, we discover that the writer of this letter is Paul. Now, most of us in this room are familiar with Paul. And when we see his name, it reminds us of the grace of God. Um, every person has a story, and Paul's story is about how one of the very worst of sinners could be forgiven and used mightily for the glory of God. He had been a Pharisee, zealous for the law of God, actively arresting and imprisoning those who were preaching Jesus as God's Son. And he looked on as Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to death. Paul was an example of the kind of person who is the most unlikeliest to be saved, at least in our minds. He was outwardly righteous. He was not a drunkard. He was not a fornicator. He was respected by all. He already believed in God. He had attended the synagogue all his life. He was a first-rate scholar. He had been trained at the feet of one of the most respected scholars of the day, a teacher named Gamaliel. Anybody from the outside looking at Paul's life, would have assumed all was well with this man's soul. And yet, the truth was that Paul was a sinner standing guilty in the sight of God. Despite his best efforts to live up to the standards of God's law, and despite the fact that he had Abraham as his genealogical father, he was still under the wrath of God. He was on his way to hell, and he was completely blind to his situation. And there are many, many like Paul. There are many who sit in churches and pay homage to religion and live outwardly moral lives 
while having never been brought to rest in the grace of God. Had Jesus not broken into Paul's life, he would have had no hope. Jesus did break into Paul's life. He was on his way to Damascus. He was in possession of these letters from the high priest in Jerusalem to go to the synagogues in Damascus. And these letters authorized Paul to seek out those who professed Christ and to bind them and to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. Here's what Paul says happened next. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, this is from Acts 26, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you and delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me. So Paul was converted and he was called to the ministry on the same day at the same time. And his life was forever changed. This persecutor of Christ became a spokesman for Christ. The opponent of the gospel was made an apostle to the Gentiles, striving to take that gospel to the far reaches of the Roman Empire and beyond. Throughout Christian history, it has been recognized that Paul's life is yet one more reason we have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. In a, sing, uh, in a single day, this persecutor of Christians became a believer and proponent of the gospel. How did that happen? How would someone who denies that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive and well and able to appear to Paul on the road to Damascus, how would someone who denies the resurrection of the Lord Jesus explain what happened in this man's life? You may remember me telling you before about Lord Littleton, the 19th century Englishman who set out to prove that the Apostle Paul was a fraud. And he went and did his research, and in the course of his research, he came to believe that the Apostle Paul was in fact not a fraud. In fact, he said that there is no better explanation for the transformation of this man than the very explanation that he gives himself, that he actually encountered the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. In fact, it was the testimony of the Apostle Paul that led to Lord Littleton's conversion. And throughout the centuries, the life of Paul has been a reminder to, to men and to women of the incredible power of God's grace to save the very worst of sinners. 
And you and I can say, even me. I hope, I hope you can say that. Even me. But before we move on, I think it's important I take a few moments to answer some questions about Paul. Uh, Paul is important to us because God's Word is important to us. And his life and letters have an important place in the Bible. Disciples of Jesus must be students of Paul. I've encountered people before who said that they, that they followed Christ, but they didn't agree with the teaching of Paul. There are many who claim that Jesus was, was one kind of teacher and that Paul was a, another kind of teacher and that Jesus is to be heeded, but Paul is to be disregarded. Now, of course, the major problem with that is that it was Jesus Himself who made Paul an apostle. It was Jesus who commissioned him as his own representative. Paul did not speak for himself, but as we were about to see, Paul was a servant of Christ Jesus. And the letters of Paul were inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Jesus speaks to us and teaches us through his appointed apostles, of whom Paul was one. And on top of all this, it has pleased God to include the account of Paul's conversion and his missionary journeys in the Bible as a part of His infallible Word for our edification and encouragement. And therefore, if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, and if we're going to to gain from the Word the benefit that is there, it behooves us to know and to study this man named Paul. Now, the first question that I want to address has to do with Paul's name. Did Jesus change Paul's name? You you may have heard someone teach in the past that that Paul was born with the name Saul, and then on the road to Damascus, Jesus gave him a new name from Saul to Paul. Saul was his name when he was a Pharisee, but now that he is a Christian, Paul is his new name. And I think people get this idea because they remember how other men and women of the Bible had their names changed by God, didn't they? Abram became Abraham. Uh, Sarah, S-A-R-A-I, became Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. Jacob became Israel or was given the name Israel. Uh, When Andrew brought Jesus to his brother in John 1.42, Jesus said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas. And John tells us that that name meant Peter. And so in light of all of these name changes in the Bible, some mistakenly assume that Paul's name was a new name given to him at his conversion. Uh, The truth, however, is that Paul was born with both the names Saul and Paul. Uh, He was a Roman citizen, and every Roman citizen had a, a praenomen, a nomen, and a cognomen, that is... A first name, a middle name, and a last name, like most of us. And Paul's first name was Saulus, Saul. And his last name was Paulus, Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name, like King Saul in the Old Testament. Paul was his Roman or Latin name, his, his name among the Gentiles. And we assume that it is because he took on this ministry of becoming the apostle to the Gentiles that the name Paul became the name we find used of him after his conversion. But both of these names are important because they reflect two different aspects of of Paul's upbringing. 
Uh, What we see is that Paul was uniquely prepared by God to become the apostle to the Gentiles because he, he was raised both as a Jew himself, but also as a Roman citizen living among Gentiles. As a Jew, he lived according to the traditions and the commandments of God's people Israel. And yet he lived in Tarsus, a place that was filled with a pagan Greek culture. And so from childhood, Paul was acquainted with both of these worlds. He was a Jew who from childhood had been exposed to Gentile culture. And it was important that he be a Jew because it was God's will that salvation come from the Jews. The gospel was entrusted first to Jewish apostles And these apostles were to lay the foundation of the church. And then from them, the gospel would begin its reach, its stretch into the uttermost parts of the earth. At the same time, it was important that Paul be a Roman citizen. Uh, In fact, throughout the life of Paul, we see his Roman citizenship playing a vital uh, part of his ministry. Paul had such a desire to get to Rome and to preach the gospel in Rome. And ultimately, it was because of his Roman citizenship that he gets there, albeit in chains. From his very birth, we can see how God was working in Paul's life, preparing him for the future path he was going to walk. And similarly, we can have confidence that God is working in our lives, preparing us for what He is going to call us to do in our futures. We can rest assured that God will never call us to anything for which He will not also prepare us and equip us by His grace. Now, a second question that often gets asked about Paul is whether or not he had a wife. Um, Some have suggested that Paul had to have a wife before, let's see, some have suggested that Paul had to have a wife before he was converted to Christ because members of the Sanhedrin had to be married. And some think that his wife left him after his conversion. Others think that Paul was perhaps a, a widower. However, when we come to the Bible, the Bible never speaks of Paul having had a wife at, at any time in his life. Paul does appear to have been uh, headed towards a seat on the Sanhedrin. Yeah, most scholars think that, that had Jesus not stepped into his life, in Paul's future was a seat on this high body of the Jewish religion, the, the Sanhedrin, and they were required to be married. Um, but Paul appears to have been converted before he rose that high in Judaism, and he never speaks as one who has, who has lost a wife, uh, whether through desertion or through death. Um, it, is, it is possible, some say likely, that there was an arranged marriage waiting him back in Tarsus once he finished his training in Jerusalem. But by the time Paul returned to Tarsus, he had become a Christian. And so that arranged marriage was probably mixed. But that's speculation. We know that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul explicitly says that he is unmarried. And while we cannot rule out the possibility that he had been married earlier in his life, uh, the scripture never gives us any reason uh, to assume that he was And uh, it's just another reminder to us of how God uses those who are single uh, for his own glory. Jesus, single all 33 years of his life. Paul, single, and uh, God used him greatly. One other question that is often asked is about how Paul died. Um, The Bible does not tell us uh, about Paul's death. There are two different traditions that have been handed down to us. And the most prominent view 
is that Paul's life came to an end in Rome when he was beheaded during the reign of Emperor Nero. Uh, the Apostle Peter is said to have been crucified upside down. At that time, it was Peter's request that he be crucified upside down. He did not want to be crucified upright in the way his Savior was. He felt uh, this was an act of humility for him to say, let me be crucified upside down. But Paul was beheaded because that was considered a more painless uh, death sentence. And because he was a Roman citizen, he was given that death sentence. So that is the prominent view. A second view says that Paul perhaps was released from prison in Rome and that he eventually did make it to Spain and and preach the gospel there. Um, For what it's worth, and it may not be worth much, but uh, this past June, uh, Pope Benedict announced that an excavation of the tomb of St. Paul at St. Paul's Basilica in Rome had taken place and that carbon dating of the bones that are in that tomb confirmed that the body that was in that tomb is from the late 1st century or early 2nd century. And so uh, for some, they really believe that there at St. Paul's Basilica in Rome, there lies the, the bones of the Apostle Paul. I don't think we can ever know for sure in this life whether or not that's true. Um, now, notice how Paul describes himself in verse 1, right? Uh, remember, he, he has not yet been to Rome. He, he knows a few of the people in this church. He's going to send them greetings in chapter 16. But the majority of the Christians in Rome he had never met. And Paul's desire is that God might use him and his spiritual gifts to bless this church in the future and that God might develop the kind of relationship between them that this church will become a source of support and service to Paul as he seeks to take the gospel beyond Rome and into Spain. And so so how Paul chooses to introduce himself to these Christians is important because we learn here how he thought of himself and how he longed for his brothers and sisters to think of him. And so in that light, it is very interesting to me that the way Paul first identifies himself is as a servant of Christ Jesus. Among all the different phrases and titles that Paul could have chosen to describe himself, he mentions this one first. And I am convinced that this title, a servant of Christ Jesus, brought Paul great joy. This title does not exalt Paul. It exalts his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if the first thing Paul wants these people to know is that he is living for the glory and name of another the Lord Jesus. Paul's passion is to serve the one who saved him. Now, Paul wasn't alone in this. In James 1.1, James describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, Peter calls himself a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 1.1, John refers to himself as God's servant. These godly men, they were lots of things, but above all, they were servants of the God who saved them. Now, I wonder about us. Suppose you were given the task of writing a a short essay with the title, Who Am I? And suppose you were instructed instructed to, to capture succinctly on that piece of paper who you are. What would you say first? 
And if someone read that paper, what would be the overarching theme of that paper answering the question, who am I? I've heard it said before that if you're sitting next to a stranger on an airplane and that stranger happens to be from the north, he'll ask you, what do you do? But if that stranger happens to be from the south, he'll ask you, where are you from? Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Probably not completely true, but it may be true generally. The idea is that uh, northerners tend to think of themselves mainly in light of their vocation. Who am I? I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I'm a lawyer. I'm a cab driver. While southerners tend to think of themselves mainly in light of their roots, right? I'm one of the joiners from near Sandy Cross, right? That's who I am. And of course, many people's identities can often be primarily shaped for some by, by their roles of their families. Well, who am I? Well, I'm, I'm a husband. Well, I'm a father, right? Or maybe you'd say a mother or a nephew. Or, you, you, but sometimes we, we use those things as, as the primary descriptions of our identities. Yet Paul and the other apostles seem to think of themselves first and foremost as servants of Jesus. There was much more to say about who these men were, but every other aspect of their lives came under this heading, servant of Jesus. And I wonder, is that true of you? When you think of yourself and all the roles that you fill, does your status as a servant of Christ Jesus trump everything else? Has every aspect of your life been given to this central theme? Is it the pleasure of your heart to identify yourself preeminently as a servant of the Lord? Now, to be a servant is to recognize someone else as your master. And as Christians, we know that that our proper place is a place of subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of the kingdom. We are its citizens. He is the head of the church. We are its members. He is worthy of our trust and our obedience. A servant is not independent. A servant is bound to his master. A servant is at his master's disposal. No longer does he live for himself or do his own work, but rather he lives for the purposes of his master and he does the work that's assigned to him. And similarly, as Christians, our purpose is no longer to do our will, but rather our will has become to do his will. So that we say, as Jesus did in the garden, thy will be done. Moreoverly and wonderfully, as servants, we belong to our master. Uh, the word translated here as servants in the Greek is the word doulos. Everybody say doulos. Okay. Can be translated as a slave. And as Christians, we are, we are servants who do not merely have an agreement to work for Jesus. We belong to Him. He has purchased us by His blood. Our rightful place is under the just wrath of God in hell. But Christ has redeemed us from that place and He has brought us into the paradise that is His service. He owns us. 
And therefore, because He owns us, He protects us as His possession. And He is willing to sacrifice for us. And He gives of Himself for our sakes. You see, there's a certain nobility to being a servant of Christ. We wear the title servant of Christ not as an embarrassment, but as a a badge of honor and privilege. This is no ordinary king that we are serving. This is the glorious one. The king above all others who is worthy of all praise. He is good and he is wise and he is perfect. He's the best of all rulers. It is better to be a servant of this king than to be a king ourselves. What makes Jesus such a great master? Well, other masters lay heavy burdens upon their servants. But Jesus has given us hearts that delight to do His will. His yoke is easy for us. His burden is light. We have no reason to groan under His commands. Rather, we have every reason to delight in the instructions our Master gives to us. Second, whereas some masters give little or no reward to their servants, we are given numerous glorious rewards for our service to our Master. As we obey Christ, we find time and time again that His commandments and instructions actually benefit us. They spare us from doing harm to ourselves. And they lead us into joys we would have never known otherwise. And of course, ultimately, we receive the reward of heaven and being the presence of God forever. Third, unlike other masters, Jesus gives us the very strength we need to obey His commands. He does not give us commands and then make us rely on our own power, but rather, through Him, we can do all things. And therefore, no command that Jesus gives to us is too hard for us. And fourth, Jesus gives us every resource we need to carry out His will. He does not give us commands and then fail to give us the tools we need. Rather, He provides for us His Word. He provides for us prayer and fellow Christians and church leaders and numerous other means of grace as well as material resources. He gives us our daily bread. He gives us time. He gives us wisdom. He gives us the breath in our bodies. Everything that we need to do what He commands, He gives to us. And on and on we could go explaining why Jesus is not just our master. He is the best of any possible master. I think there's a reason that Paul delighted to say, first, I am Paul, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. And I want us at Mount Hermon to think that way and to get that that into our bloodstream. This is who we are. This is our chief identity. Oh, I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm a pastor and I'm a son and I'm, I'm a citizen. I'm all these other things. But all of these things are a part of my being a servant to Christ Jesus. So I want to be a servant to Jesus in my husbandry. I want to be a servant to Jesus in my fathering. I want to be a servant to Jesus in my pastoring. I want to be a servant to Jesus as a citizen or as a son. It is a privilege to be a servant of Christ. It is is an undeserved privilege to be a servant of Christ. Consider the good company that you are brought into when you become a servant of Christ Jesus. You are brought into that grand number of saints who have gone before you. In the Old Testament, 
some men were, were given the title servant of the Lord. Men like Moses and Joshua and David. Jesus himself bore the title servant. The godliest people who have ever lived were servants of Christ. And it is no small thing and no little honor to be counted among that number. Now I think at least partly... Uh, one of the reasons that, that Paul and the apostles, I think, took such great joy in being called servants of Christ was because they had learned the lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples in the Gospels. Namely, that in God's economy, it is truly better to serve than to be served. Jesus looked at his disciples in Matthew twenty twenty seven and said, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And so from the divine perspective, we, we are at our highest when we make ourselves the lowest and give ourselves to the service of others. On earth, we tend to elevate those who are the, the wealthiest and most powerful. We tend to elevate those who, who have the most people serving them and their interests. But in heaven... It will not be the ones who were served the most who will be considered great, but it will be those who humbled themselves and gave themselves to the service of Christ and His people who will be considered great. Now there's a problem here, and I wonder if you've picked up on it. If it is the servants who are truly great, does that mean that since we serve Christ and He is served by us, we are somehow better than Christ? Jesus said, it's better to serve than to be served. Well, here we are serving. Jesus is being served. Are we somehow exalted more than Christ? Of course not. And here is why. And this is good, so pay attention. All of our service to Christ is in reality Christ serving us. God has designed all human beings to be worshipers, to be servants. Our, our greatest joy comes when we become what we were designed to be in the beginning, servants of Jesus, of God. We were not created to serve and worship ourselves, and that path will not lead to happiness. But in the Garden of Eden, in paradise, we were servants of our Creator, now the fall twisted the instincts of our hearts. And now we, we tend to think that true joy comes in serving ourselves and not God. But if we can remember what heaven was like in the beginning, we will know that the true paradise for us is when we take our place as servants of God. We were created to know the life of servanthood to Him. Now, how can we get back to this? As sinners, we live serving ourselves. How can we get back to becoming servants of God? Well, the God of the universe has humbled Himself in the person of Christ Jesus and has served us. He served us by living and dying for us. He serves us even now by calling us back to what we were meant to be. He serves us through the Spirit that He is graciously placed inside of us, who then moves us and enables us to serve. You see, all of our acts of service are only possible 
because Christ is in fact serving us for our joy. He created us to serve. He saves us so that we can serve. He teaches us through the Bible how to serve. He gives us the wills to serve. He alone makes our service acceptable. And all of this is done for God's glory and our joy. Friends, you cannot outserve Christ. He served us in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. He continues to serve us today. This very moment, Christian, you are being served by Christ. He is the truest and the greatest of all servants. And in accord with God's economy, he is therefore the greatest of all men. Say that again. He is the truest and the greatest of all servants. And therefore, in accordance with God's economy, he is therefore the greatest of all men. Christ is the preeminent one because He is the preeminent servant. Paradoxically, it is only because of His great service to us that we have the privilege to call Him Master. Now, if we are Christians, we have been bought with a price. Christ is our Master and we belong to Him. Our brains, our tongues, our hands, our feet... All of these should be devoted to His service. We should be eager to proclaim to Him, I am yours, and I will go anywhere you ask. I will do anything you say. I will speak anything you tell me to speak. That same humble, willing spirit of Isaiah, when he heard the Lord say, Who will go for us and whom shall I send? And Isaiah spoke up and said, Here am I, send me. That is our relationship to God. We ought to relate to Him in that way. Here I am, use me. Let me serve. Whether Christ's mission for us lies in Africa or Albuquerque, across the world or across the street, we must be ready to do His will. Our world desperately needs to see real Christians who are living their lives in radical obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Too often Christians gather in churches on Sundays and they sing, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. And then the moment they step out the church doors, they take their life right back again and live however they want to live. We must deal honestly with ourselves. Is Christ our master or isn't he? Is he the master of our marriages? Is he the master of our money? Is he the master of our time, our entertainment, what we watch on television? Is his revealed will for us the governing principle of our lives? Is every aspect of our lives under the umbrella of our service to Jesus and our desire to fulfill the good commands He has given to us? A true servant of Christ will serve Him no matter what the cost. Remember how much it cost Paul to be a servant of Christ Jesus? 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28 I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, on danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. That's what it meant for Paul to be a servant of Christ. Let me ask you this. What has your service to Christ cost you? Have there been times when you were unwilling to suffer the loss that obedience to Jesus would have required? The loss of a relationship, or the loss of material gain, the loss of popularity. There is nothing Nothing that is not worth enduring in order to know the joy of being faithful to Christ and having Him as your Master. We ought to be like Paul, willing to endure all for His, for the sake of Christ. Now, of course, it may be that we are willing to go to great extremes to serve Christ as long as others are looking. But a true servant of Christ is faithful to serve Him even when others are not looking in the secret place in the quiet moments when we're not going to be applauded for our service when only when no one sees but God that's the test of whether or not we're still servants of Jesus I want to close with this brief poem it's written by a lady named Ruth Harms Calkin and it's entitled I Wonder listen to this you know Lord how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a woman's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote you at a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day month after month in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew whether in sunshine or in rain whether other people applaud or whether they mock we are to be those who follow and obey Christ this is what it means to be his servants he has bought us and we are His. And if we're Christians, we love that it is so. Amen? Amen. Are there any questions uh, or comments about what was said this morning in our introduction to the book of Romans? Or uh, things that were said tonight uh, talking about Paul as a servant of Christ Jesus and our desire that we too would be known as servants of Christ Jesus?